For those of you who were fortunate enough to survive adolescence, or uh, for those of you who are surviving it now, going through it, I'm guessing that you have felt like many before. Um, you just want to fit in. You, you want to make it through life without embarrassment, or to be accepted, or to be seen as normal. You just want to blend in. Uh, young people, am I right? I mean, you, you walk into a classroom, a new school, a new environment, and new team, and you want to be accepted and welcomed and blend in. It's an understandable desire. Um, adults often have that same desire when they, they walk into a new workplace. They, they just want to blend in. In our, our passage today, Paul pushes against that impulse that's present within us. Paul tells us that we should not blend in, but stand out to, to shine as stars in the midst of a crooked generation. So how do we stand out? Um, why would we even want to stand out? Uh, Paul's not telling us to do something goofy to get noticed or to try and say something you know, smart and wise, but to live lives like Jesus. That, that is what it means to stand out according to the scriptures, according to Paul. And this is the privilege of, uh, this is what we have the privilege of thinking about together this morning from God's word. So if you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 981. And while you're turning there, let's just remember a few important things about this letter. So far in this letter, Paul has expressed his thankfulness for the Philippians, this church in Philippi, this Roman colony. He's expressed his thankfulness for their partnership in the gospel. As a church, they financially supported Paul in his missionary endeavors. And, and this, this financial partnership, this giving to the advancement of the gospel, this gave Paul confidence that God was at work in them. And Paul prayed that God would continue to be at work in them. Given their partnership in the gospel, Paul gave the Philippians an, an update on his personal situation. See, he was writing this letter, he was in prison. But the gospel was still advancing, even if Paul wasn't moving on to the next city. And in this, Paul rejoiced. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 marks a major turn in the letter. There, Paul turns his attention away from himself and his situation of being in prison. And he turns his attention to the Philippians. Paul called the Philippians to stand together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were to pursue unity as a congregation through humility. Paul turned to the very character of Jesus. They were to pursue the humility that Jesus pursued and demonstrated in his life. Like Jesus, the Philippians were to let go of their place of privilege and instead get under the burdens of their fellow believers and serve them. God the Father exalted Jesus for his humility. And so the Philippians can have the hope that one day God will lift them up with Christ as well. Our passage this morning, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18, is Paul fleshing out three major implications of Jesus' humiliation and his exaltation. Those implications can be summarized like this. Work out, stand out, and pour out. In view of Jesus' humiliation and exaltation, Paul calls the Philippians to work out their salvation. It's verses 12 and 13. Paul also calls the Philippians to stand out in the midst of a crooked generation and shine like stars in the darkness. That's verses 14 to 16. And finally, Paul calls the Philippians to rejoice in his life being poured out for their faith, for their sanctification. That's verses 17 and 18. This passage instructs us to do these three things. And these three points of application will also form the outline for our sermon this morning. According to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18, you should work out your salvation. Stand out in a crooked generation 
and pour out your life for others' sanctification. Let's begin with Paul's first implication of Christ's humiliation and exaltation, which is work out your salvation. This is the first point. Please follow along as I read Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul's main aim in these two verses is to exhort the Philippians to keep obeying and to keep working out their salvation. He begins this, ex- uh, this exhortation with the word, therefore, you see. Uh, with that word, Paul is encouraging us to remember what he just said. Uh, the basis of calling the Philippians to ongoing obedience is Jesus' obedience. Let's remember Jesus' obedience. If you look back up to verse 8 of chapter 2, of Philippians, you'll see that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is presented to the Philippians as their ethical example. And in verse 8, we're being told of the nature and length of Jesus' obedience. Jesus, from the moment of his incarnation through his death, he was obedient. In his life, Jesus perfectly obeyed all of God's law and all of His commands. As we thought about last week, Jesus was obedient through hunger and hounding by demons, through being sinned against and sought out by relentless crowds, through being insulted by religious leaders and indicted on trumped-up charges by civil leaders, through the tears of grief and the trouble of His soul overwhelmed with sorrow. Jesus was obedient through all of that and more. He was obedient to the point of death and through death. He obeyed God the Father in the midst of bearing His wrath and curse on the cross. And now in verse 12, Paul plants the word therefore as if to say, in view of Jesus' obedience, just as you've obeyed in the past, keep obeying in the present and persevere in obedience into the future. I'm not with you. But keep obeying. This is what it means to work out your salvation. Obedience is how you work out your salvation. Sadly, too many Christians get nervous when they're told that they must obey. Uh, Perhaps perhaps you are a bit nervous now. To be sure, Paul is calling Christians to obey. He endearingly calls these believers, my beloved. He calls his call to obedience is a call that's it's full of love and it's full of encouragement too. Paul affirms that they have obeyed in his absence. But do you see how Paul is commending the Philippians for their past obedience? When we we need to call another brother or sister in Christ to obedience, we would be wise to do what Paul does here. He he does three things. Paul he expresses his love for them. He he points out evidence of grace in their lives that they've obeyed. And he calls them to obey in view of Christ's obedience. He he points them to Jesus. Be sure to note that. Jesus' obedience for us and for our salvation ought to motivate us. It ought to move us. When we think of what Christ has done for us and how He has obeyed the Father for us, we ought to be moved to follow in His way. We ought to be moved to follow in His way whether or not a spiritual leader is present or whether anyone is present or absent. What is to be the character of our obedience? How are we to work out our salvation? With, with what? What does he say there? He says with fear and trembling there at the end of verse 12. We don't work out our salvation with fear and trembling because we're afraid of losing our salvation. Jesus said in John chapter 6 verse 37, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. See, Jesus won't lose any of God's children. We don't work out our salvation with that kind of fear. Rather, the kind of fear that Paul mentions here is that of awe and reverence of God. How can we not be in awe of the fact that the high and holy creator of the universe has condescended to save us and to make his home within our hearts by his Holy Spirit? Brothers and sisters, 
the fulfillment of the temple has made us his temple. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. John chapter 2 verse 19. And we as believers are the temple of the living God. 2 Corinthians 6 16. Do you not tremble at the idea of sinning against God with him right there? Right here. How vile and wicked we must be. How vile and wicked we are. When we commit unholy words and deeds with the Holy One within us. We should not be afraid of God, but we should be afraid to sin against Him. Paul is calling believers to work out their salvation, to work out the salvation that they already have in Christ. We don't work for our salvation, we work out our salvation. Paul is writing to those who are already saved. He said in in chapter 1 verse 6 that he is certain of their salvation. And in chapter 1 verse 7 he has declared them to be partakers of grace. What Paul is calling for is a faith that works. A faith that makes itself vibrant and visible. As we'll see in verses 14 to 16. Paul is not calling them to justify themselves. He's calling them to prove their justification and acceptance by God through exercising their faith. Christian, do you understand that growth in holiness requires you to work out your salvation? You, you don't get stronger just by going to the gym and kind of walking around, looking at the machines and watching other people work out. No, you've actually got to work out. You've got to, to pull on that handle or push on that lever. To grow in holiness, you've got to work out your salvation. Growth in holiness takes effort. And this teaching is all over the New Testament. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Jesus, in Luke chapter 13, verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, a little bit later in this letter, not that I've already obtained this or already am perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, says this, do you not know that in a race all runners run? Right? You've got to run the race. Uh, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, we're told, put to death. That's something you've got to do. Put to death, therefore, that which is earthly in you. And finally, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 29, Paul says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And that verse in particular dovetails well with what we're looking at here. Holiness doesn't just happen. We've got to work for it. Did you know that our church's statement of faith outlines at least five ways that we may work out our faith? In Article 10 of our church's statement of faith, uh, which is on sanctification, we're encouraged to work out our faith through the Word of God, self-examination, self-denial, watchfulness, and prayer. How do we work out our faith through the Word of God? We're to give ourselves to reading and hearing God's Word. It, it takes work to read God's Word, doesn't it? It takes work to read it well. It takes work to read it thoughtfully and carefully and contextually and sensitively. It takes work to hear God's Word, doesn't it? In, in this time here, you, you've got to focus. We've got to focus. You've got to fight against the temptation of thinking that, that we've got something more important to be doing. We've got to fight against the temptation of thinking that, that this application or that application is, is for this person over there, but not for me. How do, we, how do we work out our faith through self-examination? Well, in humility, we, we search out our heart's motives behind our actions. When we discover that we've sinned, we're, we're called to repent. You know, our, our corporate pairs of confession are a form of self-examination, of, of searching our own hearts. And, and so is our quiet reflection on the church covenant before the Lord's Supper. That's how we practice self-examination. How do we work out our faith through self-denial? Well, quite simply, we say no to sin and yes to righteousness. We have to turn from sin. And sometimes that turning is not just turning our minds and thoughts from one thing to another. But in some instances, it means physically turning our bodies and moving our bodies away from something. We have to say no to our wants and yes to the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. How do we work out our faith through, through watchfulness? We certainly ought to consider our steps and the path ahead of us. 
Uh, will, will going here or, or there tempt us to sin? Will being alone tempt us toward discouragement or self-absorption? Watchfulness means observing when and in what circumstances you're most inclined toward sin and to be mindful, to redirect your thoughts and attitudes and actions toward loving God and loving others. How do we work out our faith through prayer? Well, if anything takes work, it's prayer. You know this, the Puritans knew this. It's why they said, pray until you pray. They were on to something. It takes work to pray meaningfully and honestly to God. It takes work to pray for others and especially for their blessing, even when it feels like their presence is a burden. Um, It takes work to pray. And when you step back and, and think about the ways in which our church's statement of faith And really, the Bible encourages us to work out our salvation. The Word of God, self-examination, self-denial, watchfulness, and prayer. When you think about it, these are really pretty ordinary things, aren't they? Yes, and, and that's why believers who have gone before us have called them the ordinary means of grace. God uses this kind of ordinary exercise routine to strengthen our faith. And, and what is more, he is at work in them. As Paul says there in verse 13, God is at work in us. As we are working out our salvation, as we are pursuing the very ordinary means of growing in holiness, God is at the same time working within us. In fact, it is because God is at work within us that we work out our salvation. We can't really see this in our English translations, but in the original language, Paul is he's underscoring that phrase, for God, for it is God who works in you. Paul's kind of, he's kind of verbally jumping up and down, saying all this working that you're doing is graciously coming from God's work in you. Here's how John Murray put it in his wonderful little book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Murray writes, God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor are working suspended because God works. Neither is the relation strictly one of cooperation, as if God did his part, and now we do ours, so that the conjunction or coordination of both produced the required result. God works in us, and we also work. The relation is that because God works, we work. Because God works, we work. How generous, how generous of God to give us new hearts, new desires, new wills to do that which pleases Him. This is just what He said He would do. In the Old Testament, God promised that he would renew the will of his people so that it would become their will to do his will. Our ability to do good works comes from God. You remember Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. There God promised that in the new covenant era, God would give his people new hearts and he would would write his law upon their hearts. What do you do with the law? Well, you obey it. You, you, You live it out. In this new covenant era, Jesus, in our hearts, our hearts desires, it's our will to work out our salvation for God's good pleasure. So in Jeremiah 31, 33, we read this. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. When we obey, we work out our salvation. And God God really is pleased. Did you know that you can please God? When a child obeys his father, the father is pleased. And so it is with our heavenly father. Obeying doesn't make us his children. We are already God's children through Christ. Still, obedience gives evidence to the watching world that we are his children. God is pleased by our good works because it shows our fellow believers, and it shows the world that our wills are submitted to God's will. Our obedience shows that God's will and way for us is a good will and way. And, and even though our working out our salvation, even though our obedience is filled with imperfection and weakness, right? You know that, Christian, right? Your, your obedience to God, my obedience to God, it's filled with imperfection and weakness, And yet God is still pleased to accept it. When our children genuinely obey, but do so in imperfect and incomplete ways, every earthly father should do what our heavenly father does. Smile upon his son 
and gladly accept his obedience. Dear Christian, do do not fear that your obedience will be filled with weakness and imperfection. Your Father in heaven knows that it will be. Just obey him. He's pleased to accept your obedience. He will teach and correct you along the way, but know this, he is delighted with our imperfect obedience on the basis of Christ's perfect obedience. In verses 12 and 13, Paul has instructed the Philippians to work out their salvation. Now in verses 14 to 16, Paul calls the Philippians to stand out in a crooked generation. This is what we turn to meditate on in our second point. Stand out in a crooked generation. Follow along as I read verses 14 to 16. Paul writes, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The main call of these verses is for the church in Philippi to stand out for Christ. To stand out as a witness for him. And these these three verses are chock full of allusions to the Old Testament and particularly to the people of Israel. In many respects, Paul is calling the church of Philippi to live a life that Israel did not live. Israel was to be a witness to the surrounding world of what it means to be in covenant relationship with God. They were to express in their corporate life what it meant to live as a people redeemed by God and grateful for that redemption. Israel was to righteously stand out and stand up straight. Sadly, they were crooked and twisted. Think of of how different, almost how weird, um, and how much the church in Philippi would have stood out if they actually did all things without grumbling and disputing. You know, grumbling and, and murmuring is so common in our world, it's as if it's just kind of background noise to us. We're almost unaware of the discontentment that runs through our homes and workplaces, highways, grocery stores, at coffee shops. It, it, it's become difficult for us to stand in line without grumbling, to, to wait without grumbling. We hear someone in line with us grumbling, and instead of recognizing sin, we, we join in. Or, or maybe we've led the way. I'm afraid of mentioning the DMV just for a knee-jerk reaction of grumbling. Don't, don't you think that this was something that made Jesus stand out? I mean, go and read through the Gospels, and you won't find a single occurrence of Jesus grumbling. And think of what he had to live through. The Spirit purposely led him into the wilderness where he was without food for 40 days. Some of us struggle not to grumble after 40 minutes without food. Another time, Jesus laid down for a nap. And then his disciples woke him up. When people wake you up in the middle of a good nap, are you happy? And Jesus was criticized. He was called crazy by his family. Wouldn't you be tempted to grumble a little bit, how about they just don't understand you? What about disputing? What does that mean? It means to have an argumentative spirit. It means questioning everything that is occurring. And, and the questions aren't neutral, right? They're accusative. Uh, they carry within the undertone of judgment. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. There's a, there's a difference between asking why for information and asking why for condemnation, Right? That's the kind of disputing that's in view here. And here's the painful truth about grumbling and disputing. They are the fruit of a self-centered, self-absorbed, self-important person. Our sinful selfishness is the root problem that produces the fruit of grumbling and disputing. And when Paul says do all things, ouch, right? All things without grumbling or disputing, he's saying, don't be like Israel. Be like Jesus. And grumbling and disputing are are likely references to Israel's journey through the wilderness. We we read one of them uh, earlier this morning. 
but let's read another one. Uh, keep one finger here and turn in your Bibles to, to Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, uh, you can find the passage, uh, I believe, on page 57. And, and as we prepare to um, read this, this portion, uh, you need to understand that the book of Exodus, it's, it's open. The book itself is opened with the people of Israel enslaved in Egypt. And the Lord, through Moses, he, he miraculously freed his people and defeated the armies of Egypt. And when God defeated the armies of Egypt by, by covering them with the walls of the Red Sea and that water, Israel stopped and they sang praise to God. That's just what Israel has done just before our passage. They just sung praise to God for what God has done. And then the next question that the book of Exodus turns to is this. Does Israel trust God? So start, start reading there in verse 22. Uh, Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 to 25. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore it was called, therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water. And the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them. You see, the, the people of Israel, they've just safely crossed the Red Sea. Uh, they have given praise to God for his defeat of the Egyptians. And part of their praise was for where God was leading them, to the promised land. They knew they were headed somewhere, to the promised land. But here we see after three days... Their praise turns to grumbling. In three days, we move from praise and faith to fear and grumbling. Three days. The Lord has been working for more than 400 years to bring about this plan of rescuing them from Egypt. And after a three-day journey, the people needed water. I mean, surely the Lord who has been planning this for 400 years, surely he would have planned for the need for water. Surely the people of Israel have every reason to trust him. What we see here is that grumbling is fundamentally an attack on God's wisdom or his goodness or both. When, when we complain, when we grumble, we may be saying that God is not wise. You know, he's, he's not led us well and we're in danger. Or we may be saying that God is not good, that He's withholding something good for us, from us. Or we may be attacking both God's wisdom and goodness, complaining that where God has led us is both unwise and unkind. The Lord knew that Israel needed water to physically live. But even more than they needed water, God knew that they needed Him. God was driving His people to Himself. Could that be going on with you in your hardships? Could your hardships actually be God's kindness? Could they actually be God's kind providence of pushing you to depend upon Him? In the midst of difficult circumstances, God is calling you to trust Him and to depend upon Him. This looks like living in light of His sovereignty and goodness and wisdom. It means that you recognize that the Lord has given you the life that He has given you out of His generosity and grace. It means to live knowing that the bitter waters of Mara, where you are in that difficulty, that they are not your final home. It even means knowing that the little joys you find in this life will be surpassed by the infinite joy that you will know in glory. And here's the amazing thing. You will be delivered home to heaven despite your impatience with God because He is patient with you. We could keep reading uh, in Exodus 16. It opens uh, with Israel complaining again. They even dispute God's providence, suggesting that it would have been preferable to be killed in Egypt than to be in the desert. The children of Israel were not blameless or innocent. We see that as we read earlier in Exodus chapter 17. They were guilty and they were blemished. Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, urged the Philippians to do all things without grumbling, 
or disputing. It seems like Israel is doing everything with grumbling and disputing in Exodus chapters 15, 16, and 17. They were to, the Philippians were to be uh, blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And those words, a crooked and twisted generation, recall one other Old Testament reference that we need to reflect on before turning back to our primary text. So while still keeping that one finger in Philippians 2, flip forward in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, it's on page 174. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 5. Now remember Deuteronomy, it's, it's Moses' last sermon before he dies. They're his famous last words to the people of Israel. It, the words that we're about to read come within this song of Moses that the people of Israel were to memorize and sing to themselves. A song in which the changing people of Israel are contrasted with the unchanging God. In verses 3 and 4, Moses has just praised God's character, effectively saying to Israel, Look, behold your God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is why you can trust Him and should trust Him. But then, notice what happens. What, notice what Moses says in Deuteronomy 32, verses 5 and 6. Moses says, he sings, They have dealt corruptly with Him. They are no longer His children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not He your Father who created you, who made you, and established you? See, these verses, they're a charge against Israel. They're a brief preview of Israel's future rebellion. In these verses, Israel is identified as crooked and corrupt. They are children who have been cast off, for they are blemished and brutish. Here, no charge is leveled against Yahweh. This is all Israel's doing. And the questions of verse 6 that you see there, they have a kind of um, incredulous tone to them. Don't, don't they? they they're, they're kind of, how could you, Israel? After all that God has done for you, how could you? I mean, that's a question that we should ask ourselves, right? When we complain and grumble against God, shouldn't we be shocked by our complaints? Shouldn't we ask ourselves, how could I complain against God when He's been so unfailingly kind to me? As we, as we turn back to Philippians chapter 2, that's pages 981 of the Bibles provided. As, as we turn back to Philippians 2 and consider Paul's message, we can see that the evangelistic witness that the church is to have, Israel failed to have. Think, think about it. Who would want to be a part of a people, part of a church, that's marked by constant grumbling and complaining and arguing? Our self-absorption, our self-centeredness, as manifested in grumbling and disputing, it blemishes the testimony and witness of the church. It makes the church unattractive to the world. Did you know that your contentment as an individual, is important to our unity as a church. Did you know that your contentment as an individual and our contentment as a congregation is part of our evangelistic witness to the world? Living contented, thankful lives that look to, to serve others is part of how we work out our salvation. What, Christian, what, what makes you grumpy about our church? What makes you grumble about this family, this church family? What, what is it that tempts you to grumble? Is it a matter of first importance? Is it a gospel issue? Is it a matter of great importance? Or is it a matter of preference? If our personal preferences are a source of our grumbling and disputing, we should be careful Instead of allowing a murmuring spirit to bubble up, we should find ways to thank and bless God for His grace. If we are given to grumbling, we may be compounding the darkness instead of shining in the darkness. The world needs to see the light of Christ and His contentment in us. Brothers and sisters, let's recognize this. The world has always been dark. 
right? Every generation has been a crooked, twisted, and depraved generation. What we are experiencing in our world is nothing new. Israel lived among crooked and twisted nations. The Philippians lived in an empire marked by depravity and darkness. And we, well, we live in basically the same environment. Brothers and sisters who have gone before us have lived this calling. The church in Philippi lived this calling to stand out in the midst of a crooked generation. And now, it's our turn. It's our turn to live this calling. So how do we shine as lights in the world, as Paul says there at the end of verse 15? This is, interestingly enough, another allusion to the end of the book of Daniel, specifically Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, where Daniel says, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who, may, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Paul is saying, this is what you are to do, church. You, church, in union with Jesus Christ, are the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. The fulfillment of the Old Testament's hopes for Israel. So, so live it out. Matthew Harmon put it this way. Paul borrows the phrase, shine as stars, to make the stunning theological point. Because believers are in Christ, they are already experiencing in the present what Daniel chapter 12, verse 3 promised. To a world lost in darkness, the church is to shine a light and point the way back to God. This is what we are to do. Practically speaking, then, how do we live it out? How do we shine as lights in the world? We shine as lights in the world as we reflect the righteous character of our Savior through obedience to our Heavenly Father. Verse 12. We shine as lights in the world as we live without grumbling or disputing. Verse 14. We shine as lights in the world as we abstain from impure words and deeds and thoughts. Things that would blemish and besmirch the name of Jesus. Verse 15. But we also shine as lights in the world as we hold fast to the word of life. You see that in verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life is holding fast to the good news of Jesus. That word that gives life. Daily we must Hold on to the word that tells us the truth of who we are. We are made in God's image. Made to love and honor and serve Him. We are also sinful. We have rebelled against God. We deserve God's just condemnation and eternal death. And, and you may be starting to think, I thought this was a word of life. It is the word of life. It is the word that tells us that we have been brought from death to life. But we must first understand that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. It is only because the eternal Son of God took on flesh in the person of Jesus, lived the obedient life that we have not lived, died the death that we deserved, and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of our sins that we may be brought from death to life. We cross over from being dead in our trespasses and sins to life when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and makes us alive to Jesus Christ. When the Holy Spirit shows us our sin and shows us our Savior, we then turn from our sins and place our faith in Jesus. That's when we begin walking in newness of life. And we cling to this word that God has generously and graciously made us alive in Jesus Christ and promised us that we will enjoy Him for all eternity. Friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to urge you to hold fast to this word of life today. To hold fast to Jesus. He is life. And all who hold on to Him in faith will have eternal life. Believe that He lived and died and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. Cling to Him and live for Him. Jesus is the light of the world. Embrace Him in faith and begin to shine in the darkness for Him. This is the word of life. And Paul tells the Philippians why he wants them to hold on to it and not let it go. Paul also wants them to hold it out to an unbelieving world. To freely offer this good news to the lost. Both with their lives, their uncomplaining, their, their non-grumbling lives. And with their lips as they tell others about the Savior who never grumbled. But was always grateful 
and obeyed God to the end. Paul wants the believers in Philippi to hold fast to the word of life because on the day of Christ's return, that's what he means by the day of Christ there in verse 16. Paul wants the believers in Philippi to hold fast to the word of life because on the day of Christ's return, he wants to glory in the work that God was pleased to do in and through him in the lives of the Philippians. Now this, this on, on the surface seems to be kind of a strange statement from Paul, doesn't it? After all, he's been, he's been telling the Philippians in, in all of chapter 2 not to be self-absorbed. But, but it seems that Paul is thinking of himself a good bit here in verse 16. In truth, what Paul is saying is that he wants to rejoice in the work that God has been pleased to begin and finish. As he said in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. On the last day, Paul will give glory to God for all that he was pleased to do in and through him. You see, when the last day comes, when Jesus Christ returns, we're not just going to experience it in a rather neutral fashion. We're going to be rejoicing for all that God has been pleased to do in and through us and in our lives and in the world around us and in and through Jesus. And Paul, on the last day, he will give glory to God for all that he was pleased to do in and through him. This is not only good, it's also right. Paul is looking forward to the day when God will vindicate his people and prove that their perseverance in the faith and in the face of opposition, that it was not in vain. Believers will receive their reward on the last day, more Christ. On the last day, shepherds like Paul and those who discipled others and helped others along in the faith will rejoice that their labors were not in vain. Oh, there was that Christian that I was, I was helping and walking with and helping them to understand the Bible and know it. And they made it home. Praise God, they made it home. I'm rejoicing in that. That's what we'll do on the last day. We rejoice in glory in Jesus' work that he really did keep his children to the end. And that he was pleased to use us as his vessels in part of that. And this is why we must pour ourselves out for the sanctification of others. That's why we must pour ourselves out for our brothers and sisters. And this is our third and final point. Pour out your life for others' sanctification. Paul makes this point in Philippians chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Please follow along as I read. Verse 17. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. In reading these verses, we must remember that that Paul is in prison and he faces the prospect of death, even though he, he expects that he'll be released. Paul is undergoing persecution and suffering for preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. The Philippians, as a congregation, as a church, they were concerned for Paul. And we know this because they sent a messenger to him. They sent someone to, to check on him. The Philippians, they, they loved Paul. He was instrumental in founding their church. And they were instrumental in furthering his missionary endeavors. The Philippians, they had displayed their faith in Jesus by sacrificially giving to the advance of the work of the gospel. But now, with Paul in prison, their sacrificial gifts of faith appeared to be wasted. The gospel stopped advancing, or so they thought. Paul reminded them earlier in this letter that even though he was in prison, the gospel was still advancing. And by implication, it's also true that the gospel will still advance if Paul died. For the Philippians, Paul's imprisonment was a steep price. It was a high price to pay, especially since they had financially supported Paul's work. We, we gave this money to see it go, and it's not, it's not going. Paul's in prison. Paul recognized the generosity and the sacrifice that the Philippians had demonstrated. And he's saying to them, it's not in vain. The Philippians' financial giving was, was probably what Paul was referring to when he mentions there the sacrificial offering of their faith there in verse 17. You'll recall from earlier in the letter, in Philippians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, Paul, the Philippians' financial partnership in the gospel was part of what made Paul certain of their faith, that their faith was genuine. But here Paul is saying that he is being poured out on, he's being poured out on the sacrificial offering of their faith. Do you understand what Paul is saying? 
What, what he is expressing here is that he is being poured out. His life is being spent. Just like a drink offering was poured out upon a sacrificial animal in the Old Testament. That aroma, that aroma went up to heaven. And it was pleasing to the Lord. It was pleasing to the Lord because it was offered to Him in complete devotion and dedication. It was fully turned over to Him. Paul may very well die, but this would bring him delight to be so spent in the service of the Lord for the sanctification of the Philippians. You see, the Philippians need to learn a lesson in Paul's life. The Lord may be using Paul's service, his imprisonment, and possibly even his death to further the gospel and the sanctification of the Philippians. Here Paul is offering himself as a living sacrifice to God. He is freely saying, Lord, spend my life. Pour it out how you please. I will rejoice in your good pleasure, whether it's in life or it's in death. But that's not all Paul says. He also says to the Philippians, hey, hey Philippians, rejoice with me. I'm rejoicing that God's pouring out my life, possibly bringing it to an end. So you need to rejoice with me in that. It's a strange lesson, it seems. But it's exactly right. Hey, Philippians, rejoice with me. This reminds us that our personal sanctification is always connected with other believers. It may cost Paul his life for the Lord to grow and teach the Philippians this lesson. Jesus is worth everything. It may cost Paul his life to teach the Philippians that lesson. Jesus is worth everything. And the Lord may pour out Paul's life so that they come to know that. It certainly cost Paul his freedom for God to teach the Philippians this lesson. Contentment is not tied to whether you are inside or outside a prison cell. The advance of the gospel doesn't stop when you get locked up. Paul is not grumbling or complaining about his imprisonment or the possibility of his death. He's, he's rejoicing. And at the same time, he's calling the Philippians to abstain from grumbling or complaining about God's providence in their, in their lives or in Paul's life. Instead, Paul is positively calling them to rejoice in it. Weren't we taught this? I, I hope you heard about this story this past week. I think we were taught this this past week when a brother in China, a pastor in China, was arrested. He was arrested for preaching the gospel. I wonder if you read Pastor Wang Yi's letter. It was a powerful letter. Go and find it and, and read it. But just listen to this portion of his letter. Hear him. Hear him gladly accept God's providence of arrest so that others might come to know Jesus and so that the church in China might be sanctified. So Pastor Yi writes this. If God decides to use the persecution of this communist regime against the church to help more Chinese people to despair of their futures, to lead them through a wilderness of spiritual disillusionment, and through this to make them know Jesus, if through this he continues disciplining and building up his church, that's sanctification, if through this he continues disciplining and building up his church, then I am joyfully willing to submit to God's plans. For His plans are always benevolent and good. Praise God for Pastor Yi. Pray that you remain faithful. And may we all be found so faithful and gladly accept God's providence. But He may be being poured out for the sanctification of His brothers and sisters in Christ so that they may know that Jesus, He's worth everything. He's worth even your life. Brothers and sisters, our sanctification is costly. Your sanctification may cost somebody else their life. Because God wants to teach you that Jesus is worth everything. Paul knew it was costly. Pastor Yi knew it was costly. Do you know that it's costly? How is your life being spent for the building up of the faith of other believers? Do you allow your, your life to be spent for building up others? Or do you and your family and your priorities, or your work, 
consume all the, the vast majority of time and energy. Let's ask ourselves honestly, is there, is there any in the cup to be poured out for others? Do, do we need to restructure our lives, our priorities, our careers? Everything should be on the table here. Brothers and sisters, we desire many good things, many good things. Do we desire to be spent for the good of Christ's sheep and their growth and their sanctification? If not, why not? We need to be around other believers, spending ourselves for their growth and grace. We need to lead our families and arrange our schedules in such a way that we begin to orient our lives around the needs of Christ's bride. We're not here to build our own little kingdoms. We're here to build Christ's kingdom. And that involves serving Christ's people and being spent for Him and for them. What was it that Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35, he said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Who, who are you helping to grow in grace and in godliness? The Philippians were concerned for Paul. Who will be concerned? Who will feel bereft if you are stripped from their life and torn away from them? Pour out your life for other sanctification. Labor so that on the last day, you can rejoice and see, Oh, Father, that brother or sister made it safely home to heaven. Thank you. Praise Jesus. Pour out your life for other sanctification. And as we conclude, we need to remember, we need to remember afresh what motivates us in all of this. Why should we obey and work out our salvation? Why should we pursue righteousness and so stand out in the midst of a crooked generation? Why should we spend our lives for others and be poured out for their sanctification? Quite simply, because it's what Jesus did for us. He obeyed for the sake of our salvation. He pursued righteousness in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And in the end, he was poured out as a precious sacrifice so that we might be sanctified and set apart. Why? Why do we pursue these things? Because we love Jesus. Because we're thankful for his obedience. Because we want to see him glorified in our lives. And because we want to see him glorified in the lives of others. He is why we work out our salvation. He is why we stand out in a crooked generation. And he is why we pour out our lives for others' sanctification. Let's pray that God would strengthen us now to that end. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together.